Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, Brendan here with Mark. It is the week ending 16th of November 2018, vetgurus.com, the place to go, Mark, and patreon.com, vetgurus, if you want to send us some money and help support the podcast. And speaking of support, Mark, many thanks to our ongoing sponsors, Specialised Animal Nutrition and Chemical Essentials. They're, they're wonderful products and they've been a fantastic supporters for us for almost six months now, Mark. What have you been up to this week, Mark? Well, Brendan, I'm, I'm back at work. I was... Uh Bouncing the ball on the hardwood last week, as you well realise. That's right. And tell me, how many teams, I'm interrupting you already, how many teams are in this competition and where did your team finish? Well, this is a question I've been asked many times. And look, I'm really proud of the way my team went. <laughs> very, very proud. As you, I've already sent you the pictures of the bronze medal. Um, the Masters Games, the, there was 16,000 people at uh, the Gold Coast for the Pan Pacific Masters Games. It's surprising how many people since I've gotten back uh, I've come into contact with many of my friends who went but competed in other events and so I didn't see them there. I didn't realise they were there till I got back. But there were, I worked out, there were, because um, there's age divisions, Brendan, there's the over 35s, then the over 45s, the over 50s, the over 55s, the over 60s, the over 75s. Many of those age groups had two divisions and there was obviously male and uh, female sections of the competition making a total of about, oh, I think it was 64 teams and um, the oldest player, um, the youngest player obviously was 35, the oldest player was 83, Brendan. There were two players who were 83. 83. And did uh, did he beat you? Was he playing on you, the 83? Fortunately, <laughs> fortunately not. <laughs> so um, we played in the 50-plus uh, Division 2. There was two divisions in a couple of those age groups, and we were in the second division. Um, and, uh, and we managed to wrangle a bronze medal. It did feel a little bit like those... Uh, I know people get upset when everyone gets a medal at school. There's, there's a, a whole school of thought that that might not be a good thing. And not everyone did get a medal, Brendan, but enough people got a medal to make me feel, well, I wasn't absolutely special, but just a little bit special. Everyone's a winner, Mark. Everyone <laughs> is a winner. All I now, can say, Brendan, is that I'm really glad those 83-year-olds were not involved with me because that would have been embarrassing. <laughs> Tell me two things. How many three points did you score and did you do a slam dunk? <laughs> well, I can answer both those with one answer, Brendan, and you know what it is. No. Um, there, were, there, were, there were very limited opportunities for me to do either. And you, and you did see, I sent you the photo, and we probably should make it one of the photos we put on our website, my enormous vertical leap 
Um, I think I did the, I might have even got between five and six centimetres off the ground to get a rebound. And I managed to get a photo of that to send to you. So you do realise that um, uh, uh, athletic ability is uh, not my strong point. It's the smarts of basketball that I really Bronze medal, Mark. I'm very proud of you. Very proud of you. Well, while you were up playing on the boards there and um, offence and defence, I was working. I was working, Mark. And I've had a couple of really interesting cases. I um, Cat spay. I haven't done a cat spay for a while, believe it or not. For some reason, it's been a few months. So that was a bit of a novelty for me. And that was, it was in season, a six-month-old cat in season. But I quite enjoyed it, Mark. And I thought, I actually enjoy my job when I get to do things that I've done hundreds, maybe thousands of them over the years. But I haven't done one for a few months. And I really enjoyed that. As opposed to the other case, which I actually enjoyed even more, and that was an adult wombat, Mark, that, um, from a wildlife park that came to me for a referral for a dental. Um, this was, a, I think, about a, a 10-year-old wombat that um, was wasting away and the local vets had done a really good job working it up and sedating it and taking bloods and radiographs of the wombat and having a look in its mouth and discovered that it had horrible... Um, dystrophic teeth there and it could hardly close its mouth and it was wasted away because it couldn't close its mouth and it couldn't chew anymore, Mark. So um, they trucked this wombat down from near Phillip Island here in Victoria, so a good hour or two um, drive to us and we had good fun playing around with um, sedating or anaesthetising actually this wombat and um, realigning, reshaping those teeth and um, I'm happy to report he is eating better than he has for months now, Mark. So, But the bad news is chances are that we're going to have to redo those teeth again and again. Um, so, yeah, a bit of an interesting one because we don't, even when I was working as a zoo vet, we didn't see much of um, or many cases of problems with dental disease in wombats. And I think the vast majority, if not all of them, that we see um, are, are related to inappropriate diet mark as as it is with a lot of the species there surprise surprise brendan just yes surprise. tell me whether the um the teeth you describe as dystrophic were they malocluded like we see in some of the smaller herbivores yes yeah, so a really severe malocclusion especially the interestingly enough the caudal molars mark um almost to the stage where we had the spurs on i'm trying to think which side the right Upper last molar was um, so elongated, it was basically acting, acting like a, a vice, keeping that um, mouth open permanently. And I'm not surprised he was struggling to get any any fibre into his mouth and, and eat there, Mark. And um, yeah, it was amazing that, that how severe the severe the spurs and the elongation of those um, crowns were in in that poor animal. It's obviously been going on for weeks, if not months, and um, you know they'd noticed the, the the chronic weight loss there, and it took them a while, I think, to realise that hey, maybe we should get a vet in to to bomb him out a bit and have a bit of a look around. But um, wombats are one of my favourite um, native animals here in Australia. Mate. Wombats and echidnas, I love. They're probably my two two top ones um, as far as um, the animals I used to love dealing with, and I still do. 
Um, they like to bluff you the old wombats. They do a bit of a grunt and a charge at you um, and try and um, try and um, bluff you. But um, as long as you call their bluff and um, you're quick enough um, <laughs> to get around and uh, well, well, lift them up. It's interesting that you say that because um, I know that they're like that and um, and you have got to be quick because um, they, like many of our, our herbivorous animals, they have incisors that are, well, chisel-like um and if they take a mind to i've seen a couple of uh quite significant lacerations to the gastroc of certain um humans uh, who weren't quite quick enough so they they they've got to be a bit careful they hurt they hurt and they tend to sort of do a I've been bitten by, especially some youngsters that have been raised um, by carers. Um, they tend to grind too. They grab onto you, especially they grab onto your hand or your fingers, and they tend to just grind and grind. And it hurts, Mark. It hurts. Speaking um, of hurting, Brendan, speaking of hurting, I know um, that you have had um, some personal experience with surgery yourself lately. So to tell us. Um, what it's like to go under the knife yourself. Is this giving you newfound respect for, um, for example, the placement of local anaesthetic? <sighs> yes. So, well, I wasn't going to mention it um, to our um, numerous listeners, but I now have to because I can't be bothered editing it out, Mark. So, yes, <laughs> I um, had uh, surgery uh, a couple of days ago, um, or depending on when this podcast goes live, but within this last few days. And yeah, it was an interesting experience. So I had a, a, a bit of a mole, a, a mass removed from my temple um, because it had a, a bit of a swelling underneath, almost like a cystic structure that I'd um, felt a couple, few weeks ago. So the mole had been there for, for longer than that. So I went to my GP and he referred me on to a, a plastic surgeon and um, yeah, I had it removed under local, although, yes, local is a, is a key um, word with that, Mark, and um the plastic surgeon was quite surprised after she um, tried two or three times and kept saying, can you feel this? And I said, yes, I can feel that, as she was um, incising with the scalpel. Um, and then she said, oh, I've already put 10 mils of lignocaine into your scalp. I'll, I'll reach for some more. And I think she ended up putting 15 mils of lignocaine into the, the small area of my scalp. And I tell you what, it, it, it does sting, and I knew it did sting because I've had local before. Um, but finally it was anaesthetised. But uh, I'll tell you what, I had one bear of a headache um, about three hours later once that local had worn off. It was like, um, I described it to Annie, my wife, that it was like running flat out into a brick wall um, and smacking your head against it. That's what it felt like <laughs> for most of the day. Um, and um, it's been a bit of a residual headache there for a, for a few days. But, yeah, so... Hopefully all goes well. Um, I'll find out the pathology report next week. But, um, yeah, um, my skin's looking quite um, soft and um, um, nice and smooth on one side of my face at least, at least Mark. So um, who needs Botox when you can have a bit of a facelift by having a few centimetres of, of your scalp removed? So, um, you know, I wouldn't recommend it as a, as a good way to make your skin nice and taut. But um, that's what I had done, Mark. Um, thanks for um, letting the listeners know. Well, we're, we're glad that. that you're on the mend, and we all look forward to those one the the, the completely clear histopath results, Brendan. Yes, and and hopefully I won't laugh too much at um, your 
poor jokes. Otherwise, I'll burst out those uh, those suture line and um, I'll have a gaping wound in the middle of my forehead, Mark, and I can have you to blame if that happens. But you're responsible. I think we should jump into our quick news stories, Mark. I'm going to take the first one, and that is from our favourite Mother Nature Network. Llamas could one day help prevent the flu. And we all know about the flu shots. I don't know whether you have the flu shots, Mark. I have a flu vaccine every year um, too because I get exposed to lots of people coughing and spluttering in my consult room and so I like to um, be prepared and I get that flu vaccine and being over the the magic 5-0 as well as you, um, I tend to like to get it done every every year. And uh, researchers are hoping to create a universal flu vaccine, the Mother Nature network reports that would be effective against every strain of the flu and wouldn't have to be modified every year. Where do llamas come into that? Well, researchers have created a nasal spray derived from several llama antibodies that target many strains of the flu at once. And a new study found that these antibodies were able to protect mice from various flu strains. And the llama-derived antibodies can also survive without refrigeration. So they were thinking that it's going to result in a very inexpensive flu treatment that can be used worldwide, especially in um, countries where – was um, have you been um, having dinner, Mark, or was that your phone <laughs> that I just heard? Could there? be a bit of both, Brendan. <laughs> so, yeah, I thought that was a quite a good article there, but, yeah, um, how they um, ended up deciding that they were going to develop a flu vaccine from llamas, um, I um, – I um I don't know, but um, it's good because on they them, spit, so. Brendan. It's obviously because they spit. Ah, I see. They spit, so they spit, and they um. They're more likely they to, sp- you know, the the fomites that might contain those viruses. I'm making this up. This is completely. <laughs> Of course you are. Of course you are. Well, let's move on to the next news story, Mark. Um, so llamas could one day help prevent the flu. What is your story? Well, Brendan, mine is um, it's a, a story about um, a class of birds. I know that you'll find that surprising that I'm talking about birds, but um, it's one of the types of birds. Um, that... Wake me up when you finish, Mark. Um, just, just tap on the microphone, okay? Just, I'll press the uh, you know that I like the way the microphone on the recording device puts a little line, so I know when you've switched it off and gone to sleep. Yes, the um, the the, the uh, inaccessible island rail, Brendan. Um, rails and uh, um, those uh, water birds. There, um, we one of my favourite local ones is the buff banded rail we have here in in uh, eastern Australia. Um, I've also got a bit of a um, a uh, soft spot for the um, the the uh, crake. The um, one of our local birds is called a crake, and I love it when I find those guys. They're all these little um, water birds. They uh, they're, they're one of the characteristics of them is that they're um, they're uh, often found in spots where people don't expect them. And this one, the uh, island rail, the inaccessible island rail, is a flightless bird and so it's often been a bit of a question about how the hell did it get to inaccessible island um if it can't fly and inaccessible island is one of those really really well-named islands um they obviously gave a lot of thought to it and um and there is no way that a flightless bird could get there so the theory was that um 
that it was a flightless bird that maybe lived all around the world and um, this is like some sort of, uh, you know, what do they call it, a living fossil that um, it's persisted on inaccessible island because it has not been wiped out um, in uh, these most remote South Atlantic islands. It's um, right in the middle of the South Atlantic. It's uh, survived there because there's no predators. But in fact, the story is a little bit more complex than that. And it would appear um, that um, a recent genetic analysis has revealed that um, the birds that are most closely uh, related to the inaccessible island um, rail are um, flighted birds, um, little tiny rails from uh, South America, the Dotwin Crate. Crake um, has probably been the bird that has um, flown out um, even to that distance um, and uh, landed on Inaccessible Island, um, defying the name of the island, and, um, and then evolved because it landed on a location where flight was no advantage. It's um, lost the ability to fly. And I understand that, um, that process in particular because we often find in our offshore islands here, many of these, the uh, crakes and rails are amongst the first birds to show up. And they, they often um, travel vast distances to get to these offshore islands and then they disappear. They're not, uh, they don't just land there. They're quite exploratory birds for tiny uh, ground-dwelling, swamp-dwelling birds. So it's not a big surprise that um, there's genetic evidence to suggest these birds uh, um, have a, a, a much more recent origin and, uh, and actually uh, more closely related to um, the crakes and rails of uh, South and North America, Brendan. You are the biggest bird nerd, aren't you, Mark? You must tell me about the Bird Nerd Club or whatever it is that you um, go to or listen to or attend weekly. Tell me about it. Well, it, it is. It's an interesting thing that you raise that right now, Brenda, because Bird Nerd Club is proceeding without me because um, I'm here doing the podcast. But Bird Nerd Club um, is the Hunter Bird Observers Club. And I don't know, I... I I, it's it's an emotional roller coaster for me to go to uh, my bird nerd club because um there are times where you know I'm swept up in the the understanding of ecology. There's other times where I think, oh, you know what, this is a little bit weird. I'm turning into my obsessive compulsive um, uh, parent who um also has an interest in uh, not so much birds but you know train spotting, which is a similar sort of pathology as as far as I understand it. Um, yeah. and, and then other times um, there's, you know, it's just the sheer joy of uh, observation, of learning something about the natural world um, and uh, having your eyes open to a particular aspect of, uh, of something that you've observed. So it is a, it's a strange experience, Brendan. I'm sure I'm not the only one to report that it's a little bit of an odd thing to do. It's good to have a hobby, isn't it, Mark? <laughs> it is good to have a hobby. Well, let's jump into the last news story, and that is one of our ongoing topics, isn't it, Mark? It's about greyhound racing, and it's another report from the Mother Nature Network um, based a US report, and the title is, Is the Era of Greyhound Racing Finally Over? 
Florida residents have voted to ban greyhound racing and the 11 racetracks in the state still have two years to phase out operations, meaning they must be shut down by December the 31st, 2020, which means that in America, in the USA, only five states will still allow greyhounds to race. And those states are Alabama, Arkansas, Iowa, Texas, and West Virginia. Arkansas. Arkansas. Ah, yes. <laughs> ah, interesting. Yes, how did I how did I get that from there? Yes. Um, four other states don't have tracks, but dogs are still racing in and is legal in Connecticut. I better be careful. <laughs> I'm watching. States here, I'm mate. listening. Kansas, Oregon, and Wisconsin. 15 states still allow simulcast betting for greyhound racing in other states. So, yeah, it's interesting that apart from um, Arkansas and Arkansas, um, that um, it's almost finished, isn't it, in the USA? And I know in the UK, Mark, you may um, you may um, know the actual facts better than better than I do, but I think it is just about um, totally banned, isn't it, um, Greyhound Racing in the UK? Is that correct or not? I thought it had reached the stage where the racing was banned, yes, but um, I will check. Uh, and our listeners will probably send in an email to vetgurus at gmail.com and tell us whether or not that is the case. I've so, got a couple of yeah, uh, so. quick points to make about this. I'm, and some, I know these these uh, queries, these points, are, they're a little bit directed at you because um, you've got, you probably have a couple of greyhounds at your feet at the moment, Brendan. Um, we, we've noticed an increase in the number of pet greyhounds through our practice. We've been monitoring the breeds that we get to see, the dogs of the dogs that we get to see, and um, pet greyhounds are on the rise. And we, Kate and I were doing our usual walk around Lake Macquarie the other day, and there was a bloody club of pet greyhound owners walking all together. There was about 40 of them. Um, so that's really exciting. The other thing is... Yeah, absolutely. We certainly see increasing numbers of them, just in our neighbourhood, but also in the clinic as well. Um, and part of that may be that there's two of the vets here, Belinda and myself, who have greyhounds. But, um, yeah, I've I, I definitely seen more more pet greyhounds here in, in Melbourne, Mark. Yeah. Yes. And the other thing was that um, in New South Wales, we've had our, um, our prevaricating government ban it and then unban it and then pour a fair bit amount of money into the Greyhound Racing Authority um, to maintain standards. But um, the interesting thing uh, is that my understanding is the number of litters and the number of uh, dogs being bred is continuing to decline. And so um, uh, the red, the racing, the dogs that are racing, registered for racing, that are being bred is consistently dropping. And my understanding is that um, it's quite likely that only between six and ten years from now, at least in New South Wales, there'll be insufficient dogs bred um, to maintain racing. And the last thing, Brendan, is that I was at, um, while I was away, at the basketball, we were having dinner at one of the wonderful clubs on the Gold Coast, and they did, you know how in the clubs they have all those... Um, TV screens on the wall and of course I was watching the one with the basketball but there was about a bazillion other TV screens with various you you were watching the one with the bingo <laughs> with the 85 year old who beat you at basketball mark don't let all my secrets out but the the other thing that was interesting was that there was both on two screens at the same time there was both computer generated greyhound racing 
and real greyhound racing. And you know what? I could not tell the difference. I was watching why they got two races on, and it was only at the end it became apparent that one of them was uh, uh, was um, AI and one was um, canine intelligence. So, um, so that was so like the pokey type, yeah. Betting. Yeah. Um, so it was actually computer generated. Huh. So, so I think there's a lot of reasons to expect that um, we won't, won't racing won't be around for much longer, and this Florida story is just another nail in the coffin. And and part the rest, one third of that article then also talks about the um, uncovering the abuse of the um, greyhounds and all the. All the comments there are, are nothing new, are they, Mark? To to what's seen, I think, in the rest of the world with the overbreeding and the and the poor um, poor treatment of the greyhounds, and um, you know they're a commodity, and uh, you know where there's money and animals, um, I think the animals always lose out, in my opinion, anyway, um, with it. So yes, I think it will be good once it is finally over. So that was the the last news story. There was one um, little to make one it- at the end of that that I thought. Um- uh, particularly pertain to you, greyhound fans say that do- the dogs make excellent pets. They are sociable, gentle, and often described as forty mile per hour cage- couch potatoes. I thought that was an excellent description. Absolutely, yes. They'll they'll sleep for twenty three and a half hours a day. The other other half an hour, they'll be go out to do, do a bit of a wee and a poo, and uh, they'll they'll do their laps around our backyard for two or three minutes, two or three times a day and um, go for a little bit of a walk with us. Um, and that's about it. Yeah, so they do run at their yeah, 40 miles an hour or 60 kilometres an hour or so or more um, or less, depending on whether them whether whether Jez is ca- – he just lopes along and, and easily catches up to patch the female um, and then um, – tries to bite her on the side of the neck and gets overly excited um and then they have a little bit of a barney and a bit of a bit of a snap at each other and then they're all happy again and then they lie down for another 10 hours mark so yes they are couch potatoes they're they're good pets good dogs the old greyhounds yeah um you wanted to make a comment about um um, news stories didn't you um and and the the lack of supply of them (laughs) I was. Um, we were talking before we came on to air um, about um, wonderful. One of the wonderful resources that I'm sure most uh, people who perform podcasts to broadcast in this medium, we're heavily dependent on our researchers. Um, and I know that uh, you know. I, I want to give due credit here. You do a a um, well and. <laughs> All I don't want to uh, all the research um, that brings the information uh, for our podcast together, but there is another researcher who, um, geez, I don't know. We're, we're we're in a situation where we're just you know not quite getting enough out of out of our uh, research team, and I don't want to do this publicly unnecessarily, but um, but I, I think it's important to call out these events as they occur um so that we can like you know make sure we keep this podcast going yes keep the emails coming is what we want to say to our our researchers and um there's been a bit of a dearth of of emails lately so get back onto it and send us some articles yes and we welcome articles from any of our listeners and we've had some fantastic emails from people we've We've never heard before and we probably never hear from them again <laughs> because um, we may rub them up the wrong way with our replies to the emails. No, we don't. We love our we love our um, we love our listeners. So yeah, send an email if you find a 
a nice newsworthy story to us. We'd better get moving on to our main story, Mark. But before we do that, I'm going to do a quick review because we haven't done a review for a while, and that is a dressing I use very frequently for our little reptilian patients, Mark. It's called Opsite Flexi Grid which is a transparent adhesive film dressing. I'll put a link to it in the show notes at vetgurus.com. But I use um, this a lot for the reptiles and um, postoperatively when I've done a done a, um, an incision into a body part of a snake in particular, but often the lizards as well, um, and sometimes even the chelonians, the turtles, um, because it's a great little film um, that's adhesive and it's waterproof but waterproof but it also has um, a moisture vapor permeability mark so it lets out moisture as well so it doesn't get all hot and steamy under it and it's very flexible so I often put it on an incision where I've I've, I've gone in there and done a ciliotomy and um, the perfect example would be a snake um, that I did a cesarean on earlier this week and I unfortunately had to make three big incisions because I couldn't get those eggs out through the one incision because I would adhere to the oviduct so I ended up with three incisions along the length of the snake and I then once I've sutured the skin wound I then placed the flexi grid on top of it Mark because they they adhere really nicely and they're just a really good post-operative um, little bandage or, or a dress in there Mark so I use them um, quite frequently for the reptiles in particular but sometimes with the mammals as well um, many listeners or, or vet veterinarians and, and nurses or technicians will know of the Opsite spray which is a spray on sort of adhesive dressing but this is the Opsite flexi grid it's called so yeah it's um I'd encourage people to have a bit of a look at it and um, yeah I think you'll find it quite useful and I, I've even used it as a as a drape um, a sterile drape during surgery, Mark, because it because it is an adhesive dressing for very small reptiles, including some of the small snakes and lizards. I can use it as a drape where I'll be sticking the lizard or the snake to the table with it, and I have a sterile field there and, and a see-through little um, dress in there that's the um, that's the drape um, that acts as the drape. So it's it's working in a few different ways there, Mark, keeping the patient from moving around and um, sticking it to the surgical table and also a nice um, sterile little um, access point for the animal. So that's the Opsite Flexi Grid. Brendan, do you... I'd probably give it... Before you give it, give it, Mark. Before you give it your score, I've got a couple of quick questions. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, do you, how frequently do you change them, Brendan? I well, basically, the the only time I'm changing it is when I'm removing it with these reptiles. Uh, it's coming off at probably that post op check if it hasn't already sort of um, worked its way off. Because eventually, at the edges, after a few days, they tend to sort of ride up a little bit and um, start to roll up there. So, um, but um, for instance, this snake, which um, will be going home tomorrow it's been in the clinic for a couple of days or maybe three days by the time it goes home it will have a post-operative check um, next week and um, I'll potentially be removing that at that stage so yeah I don't typically um, remove them um, in the mammals I may may remove it and then um, replace it but I must admit for the vast majority of them I'm just having it as a once-off um, post-op treatment so it's almost like 
you know, in, in addition to to, to um, the intradermal or the or the um, skin sutures, and it's staying on for about the same length of time in the mammals, especially that five, you know seven to ten days or so. Do you um, ever use it with other you know wound gels or um, you know for open wounds? No, I haven't, and I know it can be used for that. And I think in the in the um, in the little benefits and the use of it in on the um, on the website and in the product use, it can be used for um, with those sort of hydrogel type dressings and those types of things. But I must admit, I haven't used it. I've, I've just used it exactly like I, I mentioned there, a post operative sort of dressing to keep it keep it clean. Especially with you know the ones I love using it with, and I use it the most often is snakes when I've done a done sort of celiotomy there, and it's fantastic. But keeping them clean, um, yeah. So it's in addition to those sutures that you've popped in um, the skin there. Yeah. What's your score? What's so your my score? score, Mark, will be a very solid. Um, let me think. Let me think. <laughs> eight point three. Eight point three. I'm going to. Eight point three. That's why. why it's only an eight point three. You'd think that's a low score because you're always giving way over eight point three, aren't you? Is because it can get a little bit fiddly, and when it's applied, there's sort of a technique. There's a. It has one, two, and three on it. One you remove the one part of it and you stick it onto the animal then you remove number two and then you have the grid on there hence it's called flexi grid and i think the theory behind but about the grid is it has this green hatched grid on there and it is a a it's according to the brochure a unique wound measurement grid mark so i think for humans it's supposed to be there so you can um, then i think they're one centimeter grid so you can measure how long the incision was or the lesion was um, by just looking at how many grid points across um, you can use there but um, I, i never really use that there but um so it gets a little bit fiddly pulling off the last little bit which is that grid um and just having the clear film stuck down there so even though it tends to adhere quite well um, occasionally I put one on and it, um, I make a bit of a mess of it Mark and I have to um, pull it off and I reapply another one so that's why it only gets an 8.3 but it's still a very solid 8.3 and, and I I very much like the product Mark so op site flexi grid well I'm interested to know how like our main topic uh, for tonight um, I, I suspect there might be some times where your item, your your subject of review might come in useful for that too, Brendan. Well, the main, well, it doesn't actually, but <laughs> it could. No, it could. It will. <laughs> but not with the case that um, made me think about the topic for today. So the topic for this week is amputation of limbs in unusual pets. So we're not talking about snakes, obviously, <laughs> Mark. Um, and we're going to go through a, a walkthrough in limb <laughs> amputations in exotic species, that so to speak. So we're going to talk about which, yes, limp through. Now we're going to walk through and then we're going to limp through after we've done the amputation mark, aren't we? Um, what species does, do we frequently amputate limbs in our unusual pets and why? And also which species it works well in and which species we would never consider or very reluctantly consider amputating a limb on. So um, I think we'll just run through the common ones we see and, and, and that we do, Mark, in practice. And the reason why I picked on this subject, Mark, is because I did amputate a limb 
from a rabbit earlier this week, Mark, and it hasn't looked back since. It was a really nasty um, compound fracture of the radius and ulna, distal radius and ulna. It was a rescue rabbit that um, we saw or I saw, saw earlier this week and the fracture was at least about 10 plus days old. It had been bandaged and had some basic supportive care at, a, at the referring veterinarian um, and then it was sent on to us. Um, so it was a pretty pretty nasty, or actually it wasn't compound as in um, through the skin, but it was a, a, a nasty comminuted fracture there and um, it was very swollen still and it had been there for a fair period of time and I elected to amputate the limb on this animal instead of trying heroic um, external fixatives, which is what I was um, tempted to do initially when I when I saw the um, original radiographs, Mark. So it was a front leg of a rabbit. So maybe if we talk about rabbits first, Mark, I don't think I put rabbits down first in the list of things to chat about, but... Um, I, I, I would. My advice would be if if you have a inoperable um, or problem in a front foreleg of a rabbit, then um, I think they have a reasonably good chance of, of working quite well. Um, the hind leg amputations in rabbits, Mark, I think, are a little bit of a, a questionable um, procedure with them because I have done hind leg amputations in rabbits, and I'll be interested to see if you've done many, Mark. Um, but I'd regard them as much more problematic um, as far as the result with them. So technically, the surgery I don't think is is particularly difficult. Um, the, the actual process of the amputation, as it is, I, I think, with most of the species we're going to talk about, Mark, with, with the limb amputation um, in this podcast, technically it's fairly straightforward, but it, it's, it's the... The difficulty of, of how that particular species will or won't cope with the amputation. And my thoughts are the bottom line with rabbits with, with four limb amputations is usually they do okay or, or very well. Um, but with hiding limbs, you have to think twice about doing it, Mark, because a lot of them I've found really struggle, um, even if the actual surgery goes fine and, and, and the, the surgical site recovers well and we don't get any post-operative complications with it that um, because they've got such a big muscle mass um, in that hind leg we start to get problems with urine scald and fecal scald and then we go down the track of a, a rabbit that's not a happy rabbit and we end up having to euthanize it um, so yeah what's your thoughts on limb amputation in rabbits mark and have you have you had much experience well with it? we have as it happens brendan and um and just like you we get uh, a few referrals and um and and obviously primary healing is our target um trying to um, get the bones, any fractures to heal or trauma to settle down. But um, with our rabbits, with if we have those severely comminuted fractures, particularly of the front legs, we don't hesitate. Um, we amputate, and uh, and just like you, they we find that the rabbits cope with foreleg amputation almost invariably. They uh, they make the adjustment. They rest in such a way that they. Uh, they are not putting undue pressure on the contralateral limb um, and they cope really well. And we have had a couple of hind limb amputations that have gone particularly well, but just like you, I've had um, many more um, that have had complications that have, um, that have ended up, particularly with, you know, one of the things about 
uh, rab- spending time with aging rabbits as you work in a practice that works with rabbits is that you uh, come to understand the very precise positioning of the whole urogenital area, and whether it's in terms of passing the cecotrophs to the mouth, whether it's in terms of uh, um, uh, urinating or defecating, um, all those uh bodily functions are acutely dependent on the the conformation and the positioning. And as soon as they're compromised, whether it's something as simple as spinal arthritis or uh, um, uh, complications with the fur, if if that body position and ability to eliminate is compromised, we frequently get problems. And so we're much more cautious about uh, considering amputation of the hind legs of our lagomorphs, Brendan. Yes, and I think the only other comment I'd have about the rabbits, Mark, is is if you know that rabbit, then know the personality, or at least the owner does. I sometimes make a selection based on that as well because I think some rabbits are much more hardy and cope with procedures more than others, and and I I do always pre-warn the client, even with those four limb amputations in the rabbit, that I'd say, look, most of them do fantastic um, or very well, and if the if the surgery goes fine and we don't have any complications, then our, my only concern is that we do occasionally see a rabbit that everything seems to go fine, technically it goes fine, but that rabbit does not individually seem to cope very well so whether it's that i call it the personality to the client or the the behavior of that rabbit it just some of them i don't know why just don't seem to cope with missing that limb and um whereas if it was a a a dog for instance or a cat um it may may um may um, cope fantastically well the majority of the time have you found that certainly a characteristic of rabbits that um that there seems to be a, a, a subset of those personalities, which are, um, uh, how shall we put it, um, tactfully without offending anyone. Not hardy? They, they do just give up. They, there's a certain proportion of them that um, that the slightest thing goes wrong. And we, real, we notice this not just with uh, fractures or amputations, um, but in a whole range of illnesses that, um, you know, whatever it is, 70, 80, 90% of our rabbits will uh, respond brilliantly to treatment and, uh, and surge along in their recovery. But that small percentage of, um, of uh, highly sensitive, overly emotional, um, uh, they, they, there's just that cohort who, uh, for the slightest reason, will just like literally give up the ghost. And you can see it in their eyes. They, they, um, they like give up. They just go, oh, this is no good and I'm not doing any more. Um, so it is, it's a very wise uh, veterinarian who works with rabbits that makes those selections on the personality of the rabbit. And there is definitely a, 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 a proportion that um, it's not a wise thing to go ahead with, that you're only going to um, disappoint the client and cause more suffering for that, uh, that rabbit in particular. Yes, so I think it's always wise, as you say, to mention to the client that um, this surgery may go well, but we need <laughs> to always consider that this particular animal may decide at some stage to give up the ghost um, at the end, um, even though everything went fantastic and Mark's surgery was wonderful, but that rabbit decided 
that it doesn't like to live with three legs. Yes. So we need to – does the same happen with birds? It's an interesting thing because it does, Brendan. There are certain – it tends to be more species-oriented um, and there are um, – there are species. So before we talk about those species, we should just highlight that um, that we do do amputations in, in birds. We are really cautious because if we're taking one of the feet off, um, the relatively um, borderline circulation to the feet of birds means that um, the extra weight that's put on the remaining leg um, is runs a real risk of developing uh, complications in that leg, such as bumblefoot. It would be a regular thing for us to contemplate a, a, uh, an amputation and decline to do it because um, of the risk of the high risk, almost certainty of uh, that complication afterwards. It's one of the things that I get really upset about. You know, I'm you know, I've been relatively even-tempered lately, Brendan, but one of the things that really gets me, gets my goat, um, are those bloody YouTube videos, the Facebook posts of, uh, of uh, ducks with their 3D-printed prosthetic feet, um, and, and they, you know, get huge numbers of views, they're they're, you know, my favourite word, clickbait. Um, but I know those animals, those ducks, are highly likely only a few months down the track as they shift the weight because it's uncomfortable to use that. They'll only need to make a 10, 20% difference in weight bearing and that'll be enough to uh, to compromise the blood flow to the base of the foot on the healthy leg. They'll develop an area of a vascular necrosis which will get infected um, and cause pain and uh, mean that the duck is suffering in both legs. So um, there are species which we, you know, uh, and particularly it's not just the species. That, um, I have a, a uh, client who has a relatively heavy um, sulfur-crested cockatoo um, and uh, they... Uh, that bird had a uh, cancer on its foot that we amputated the foot. That client has spent an inordinate amount of uh, time and money to create an enclosure that uh, allows the bird to use its beak to support it um, and has particular perches that are, uh, are softened so that the blood flow can be maintained to the foot. And that bird's doing exceptionally well, but they are... Um, the exception rather than the rule. And most of those heavier birds, we'd be very cautious about um, removing a, a, a leg and leaving them with one leg. However, Brendan, I'm quick to point out that uh, as far as wings go, um, birds tend to make an excellent adjustment. They, they, um, they generally, uh, they, they, when the, and we do find, um, once again, um, the wings are a common location for us to find tumours um, and uh, and they definitely can have um, lesions, wounds, um, fractures that are unable to be, uh, um, to be fixed, uh, suitably fixed. They even have, we've had a, a lovely eclectus that had a fracture that I thought was going to be a cracker to fix. We placed the external fixative but the sharp shards of the fracture fragments had lacerated both the nerve and the blood vessel and the distal part of the wing to the, frag the fracture site um, 
uh, developed avascular necrosis despite my outstanding positioning of the external uh, was a tie-in fix that we used. Um, so these things do happen and the birds take some time to adjust to having only one wing um, but they generally do cope really well with them. Um, uh, they readjust their balance um, the way they use their wings to get about and maintain their balance. It takes a little bit of time for them to um, to reposition re, um, their centre of gravity and understand how they're going to move in certain positions, but they tend to cope really well with that particular procedure, Brendan. Where are you making the incision? Where are you taking that wing off, Mark, if it's a distal injury but you want to amputate the wing? How far up do you take it? Um, well, well, we try and go um, mid-shaft in whichever um, bone is above the lesion. We try to leave um, a part of the, uh, um, the bone remaining um, so that, um, that, they, uh, that they have uh, some... And we find that they find they adjust more quickly if they have some uh, stump to uh, to continue to move around. And I, I know that in uh, dogs, for example, we'll leave the scapula in place with the theory that um, it will provide that extra bit of protection if there was subsequent trauma, so that trauma wouldn't directly um, hit the uh, um, the body wall, the thoracic wall, and potentially damage those structures. Um, but um, but we'll find, and, and I definitely find that that's the case in birds. If we leave some uh, um, stump for them to work with and uh, um, add to their ability to move around and maintain their balance, they tend to cope that little bit better. Yes, and jumping back to the rabbits, I typically go mid-humerus with the rabbit's mark rather than taking off the whole limb and going up to the scapula. I just find and leaving a really good muscle mass there too to wrap around the um, mid-shaft of that humerus there, just making sure that if you are using that technique that um, you're careful when you're um, sawing through that um, pretty brittle bone there. I use a little hacksaw to saw through it rather than, you know, rongeurs or, or, or bone bone cutters there because you're liable to shatter the that humerus longitudinally. Then you will need to take it off right at the shoulder joint there. But that's, that's probably it. Preferred a thing, thing that happens to all our small, um, our small uh, companion, the, the small exotic animals and birds, um, that, yes. they, that it's exactly the same. We don't like using the bone cutters or rongeurs. We'd much prefer to use the um, uh, a saw so that we um, get a, a cut that's not going to um, have micro fractures rising up or major fractures rising up from the amputation site. Yes, and speaking of reptiles, Mark, um, do you do many partial amputations or full amputation in our little lizard friends? Do indeed, Brendan, and um, and particularly the common uh, squamates that have legs, um, the the uh, uh, bearded dragons, the blue tongues, and shinglebacks. They seem to um, particularly have you know our bearded dragons, particularly at this time of year, will uh, get a little bit um, antsy with each other and. Uh, um, and uh, and have a nip at anything that moves, and those bites are like I've been tagged by one of those bearded dragons, and they hurt. Um, so it's no surprise that the delicate end of the the limb can be um, can be dramatically traumatized and have significant secondary infection. And 
Um, and uh, and obviously, if those things are not treated very very quickly after the accident, we're in we end up with a, a necrotic stump, and um, and they are uh, surgeries that we perform quite regularly. And interestingly enough, the animals cope excellently. They majority do fantastic, don't they, Mark? And we certainly do a lot of limb amputations or partial limb amputations in those lizard species as well. And often they're just partial amputations there and they do particularly well with those partial amputations. Um, whereas vets who are inexperienced with dealing with the reptiles may consider that you need to remove the whole limb, but they do they do well, don't they, Mark, if you remove it at the next joint or just above or just below the, the next um, affected joint or the unaffected joint there. And um, I remember one of the bit of dragons that was a donated animal that had been in the wars um i did partial amputations of both hind legs and um just above the knee there and um obviously it ended up being rehomed with a name called stumpy and stumpy was um lived for many many years um and was kept by one of the my nurses at that stage and um he could climb fantastically well and bask and, and do all the normal things that his his full-limbed friends could do, Mark. So, yeah, so, uh, you know, I'd encourage people to um, go ahead and, and get stuck into those limb amputations in the lizards when, when you need to do them because they do remarkably well, as you, as you mentioned there, Mark. We um, definitely what about see, our Chelanians? Well, I was just going to say we definitely don't see the same sort of precious or issues that we do with um, the birds. You're, you're highlighting turtles, Brendan, and I wanted to tell you a quick story. Um, it's a bit of a... Sad story about turtles. Um, from, from, we've done a fair bit of work here uh, around Lake Macquarie and Newcastle dealing with uh, um, our, the green turtles or the sea turtles we see here. Um, and for many years, probably about four or five times, I suppose, we would be presented with um, a turtle that had a, um, a missing flipper um, and then they had some critical injury to another flipper. And and um, at that stage, uh, we would consider euthanizing that animal because we figured that um, having only two remaining uh, active flippers w w wasn't going to be enough to allow them to survive in the wild. But those green turtles are remarkably tough, Brendan. And in an echo of um, what happens to our freshwater friends, they um, regularly, and I know this because we have a, um, a case which was which had a, um, a, a tracker put on it um, of a turtle that had um, was in care for other reasons but had two missing flippers. Um, was released to the wild and travelled up to the barrier reef again. So um, I, I think uh, um, those uh, colonians, the freshwater ones and the ocean-going ones, they are remarkably adaptable and uh, they, they tend to cope um, very, very well and adjust their swimming to uh, cope exceptionally well with the absence of a limb. And what about our little pet turtles, that, like our eastern long-necks and our short-neck species, Mark? Do many of those? Probably not so many of the long-necks, um, but certainly the um, short-neck turtles, renowned for, um, have, despite their largely herbivorous diet, they seem to be um, just a little bit more aggressive with uh, um, their cage mates, and uh, we will regularly find um, they've, They've suffered significant trauma at the mouth of one of their 
uh, cohorts. Um, and we do, uh, in, you could imagine that those significant trauma uh, swimming uh, in an aquarium in a, a wet environment, they only need to be not noticed for a day or two and the infection is too severe for us to hope to control. And so um, we do have a, a significant number of our freshwater short-neck turtles with uh, an absent, particularly an absent forelimb. Um, they, uh, they seem to um, square up with each other and, and when one moves, the other one will have a nip at the foot and that can, uh, um, that the trauma that occurs can be very, very difficult to heal and so amputation is a perfectly acceptable resolution. Yes. Well, I agree completely with what you said there, Mark. Um, I find a little bit of a challenge with some of them when they've had um, a lesion that's fairly high up in that shoulder area, Mark, and then then trying to access it to cover over that um, stump. Um, once I've once I've done that amputation, so I've had the odd one that sort of breaks down a little bit there, and we're dealing with an aquatic or an animal that spends a lot of time in the water there, so we're dry docking it um, post-operatively for a fair period of time. But um, I get a few that, not many, but a few that um, we have post-operative complications. Do you have any thoughts about how to prevent that, Mark, or is it just my poor surgical technique? No, you know what high esteem I hold your surgical technique in, and not for a moment will I accept that that any of your... uh, uh, wound breakdowns are attributable to technique because they happen to me too, Brendan, um, particularly those ones that are, are, um, are further up. And we've had a couple of uh, um, femoral fractures in those turtles and they are difficult to access and um, and getting the the sutures in position. And, and obviously you can't use your wonderful uh, off-site FlexiGuard in positions like that and hope to... Uh, Hold things together, and and there are occasions when um, the the uh, constant movement, once even when the animals are dry docked, is enough to cause the wound to break down. And I think you've just got to like take it a step at a time, provide an adequate um, uh, antibiotic therapy, provide adequate pain relief, um, make sure the wounds check daily, um, and um, and we've had several of them heal very well by second intention, um, despite the excellent job I did to start with opposing the tissues and um, ensuring the bone was uh, covered by that meaty muscle mass of the quadriceps. Yes. Now tell me about guinea pig amputations, Mark, and what's your thoughts on how well they go? Well, um, I think the guinea pigs are... Are reminiscent of rabbits in my experience that um, that we definitely have uh, um, a group of animals with four leg injuries who uh, cope admirably, um, but even the, the, I, I would even be a little bit uh, more, I suppose, hardcore with uh, the uh, hind leg injuries. They um, that my experience with those is that if we cannot get them to heal. Um, in such a way that the leg can be saved, um, they they go badly if they don't have um, uh, the support of both hind legs, Brendan. Yeah, I, th- I think they're a little bit more precious, I suppose, as my, my comment compared with rabbits, guinea pigs in, in a lot of surgical 
aspects or, or most surgical procedures in that they I'm always more cautious with recommending that we're going to have a good result in guinea pigs um, and that includes any amputations although I must admit that compared with the rabbit amputations that I've done there's few and far between that I've done with the guinea pigs mark but um, I'm always really cautioning the client that this um, could go very wrong and that the technically it might work very well but that they're often um, guinea pigs tend to drop their bundle a lot quicker in in my my experience mark and they tend to um just give up um as you mentioned with happens with some of those rabbits so i'm a lot more cautious with even with the four-leg amputations in the guinea pigs with recommending um doing that surgery but if it has to come off it has to come off mark um but i would be warning to the warning the clients that there's a, a much higher chance that we might have an issue with that guinea pig not coping once that limb has been removed with that. Yeah, so that's my now, comments. Brendan, tell me, regarding... a little note in our show notes here, a little agenda that um, reminds me of that there's a thing here that I don't quite understand that talks about the emu story. Oh, the emu story, yes. Well, Appropriate species as far as limb amputations. I, I was dealing with a referral with a practitioner who I was guiding them on treating an emu that had a uh, nasty stifle injury, Mark, and uh, which ended up being an osteomyelitis, I think, if I remember correctly. It's a fair, fair number of years ago. And uh, the, the vet was... Um, emailing me and, and phoning me about um, for advice about sedation to do some radiographs and then work up the case with doing some fine needle aspirates and uh, culture and sensitivity, etc. Um, and it just kept getting worse, this emu, um, with, its, with its leg, and it was a massively swollen leg and a very, very unhappy emu. And um, yeah, so um, the last phone conversation I had with the practitioner was, um, he was he was suggesting that perhaps he amputate the limb on the emu that um, the emu would um, do reasonably well and um, with one leg um, and um, I, I just didn't um, say anything for a few seconds on the end of the phone and then said well perhaps not I don't think an emu would cope very well just with one leg um, unless you had it sort of pointed around the side of a um, hill and it could sort of hop around you know, if it had a left leg amputated, it could hop around the hill anti-clockwise with its right leg as long as it didn't stop. Um, I think it might cope. But, yeah, I, I don't think an emu would cope very well with a with one leg, Mark. Um, have you have you heard of any of that? I'm one literally leg? crying at the moment. I'm laughing so hard. <laughs> um, I'll tell you who would know, um, and that is our, our good friend Doug. Um, perhaps he can um, send an email in to us, um, Doug, the ratite specialist specialist um whether he's amputated any limbs in in our little ratite friends um but yeah so that's my little emu story about inappropriate um, recommendations as far as amputating limbs so there are some species that we'd perhaps recommend that euthanasia is the best way to go and that would include an emu mark so that's my emu story um is there, is there, is there anything else you do you have a <laughs> I, still can't I think we should well we're are there any other species <laughs> that, um, that you want to touch? 
Yeah, okay. So I'll let you gather yourself there, Mark. Um, so we'll talk about a couple of other ones, and that's rats and mice, so our little rodent friends. And, yeah, I do occasionally amputate um, limbs of rats and mice, and um, they do reasonably well, some of them, providing that we don't have that po- post-operative complication when they decide to rip into their wounds. And I think the key there is, like all um, surgery with their small mammals, is adequate analgesia, which we always talk about, Mark, in the podcast. So rats and mice. Um, other ones are amphibians, and I, I have occasionally amputated a limb off a little froggy a friend, and, and perhaps you have. You might want to make a comment on that, but Mark. We do every once in a while have to. There's, there's definitely the circumstance where we have infections we can't control. Um, the blood flow is a question in some of the fractures that we see with them, and, uh, and so certainly there are times where uh, we have a number of green tree frogs where um, they don't have a full limb with our axolotls, Brendan. Um, uh, they, we have had a couple of those uh, who have uh, been in multi-axolotl tanks, um, and uh, as those, they, they have a fairly uh, decent uh, nip on them, and we've had some of those that have injuries. But the interesting thing about those guys is that um, you can amputate them, and uh, they will grow back, um, which is uh, um, especially uh, well. It's a particularly neat trick, um, but um, uh, so amphibians we very frequently uh, um, where we can't get a fracture to heal or we have a serious infection or a growth, we will take those limbs off. Yes, and the last one we'll talk about is invertebrates, Mark. So have you managed to pull off some limbs of our little spider that friends. sounds like a particularly cruel question, Brandon. But we do. We have had um, uh, um, some of the Australian uh, tarantulas, the Selenocosmia species, Selenotypus species, um, that have had particular problems with their uh, shedding, um, and we will uh, take those animals, particularly if they have a deformed leg that's being traumatised, um, and we can anaesthetise them and uh, um, and literally um, uh, section the leg at one of the joints. The you know the arthropods they've got joint legs, and so um, uh, putting a, a cut, making a amputation at one of those joints above the damage site um, and then using tissue cement to seal the wound um, it works particularly well many of the the, the um, animals that we have gotten to do this to are adult ones and so they are not likely to have frequent sheds and uh, and um, and possibly develop new limbs um, they are, um, are most likely to to remain seven-legged, um, but um, they cope really, really well, and particularly if the procedure is done before they lose significant hemolymph through the damaged leg, um, then they cope particularly well. Yes, and I think the trick there is, or the, or the key technique there is, to remove it at that joint mark, isn't it? Because that, otherwise that hemolymph will keep 
potentially exit in there even even when you're trying to um, glue that area um, because they, they're almost a little bit self-sealing, aren't they, at those joints there? And I think Alan Henderson, who we both know, who's an invertebrate specialist here in Australia, he um, he describes the technique very well of, about sort of popping off those um, limbs at the joints there and, and making sure that we don't um, have um, that little spider bleed out or the equivalent of bleeding out with the haemolymph there, yeah. So that's a good little rundown, isn't there, Mark, of, of amputations of, of animals, of, of all those little and big unusual pets and, and some that perhaps we shouldn't consider amputating as well um, and the methods involved with it and um, maybe a couple of tips and tra- techniques that that we found useful, Mark. So um, hopefully everybody enjoyed it and um, we better get out of here because we've been well over one hour and we will talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.